Hey, good morning. Good morning. Uh, welcome. Uh, my name is Jamie Borchik. I am part of the teaching team here at South Rogers Park. Uh, if you're new, especially, we want to welcome you this morning. It's great to have you with us. Um, if you've got a Bible with you, uh, you can turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. I think it's page 548 in the House Bibles. Page 548 in the House Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. So please take it. Um, so this mor- uh, a few weeks ago, I was downtown and uh, I needed to head out to the west side of the city for a meeting. And so I plugged in the address of where uh, I needed to go into Google Maps. And Google informed me so helpfully that in order to get where I needed to go, I needed to take the green line of the CTA. Now, I ride the CTA, ride the L regularly. Um, I know my way around the train pretty well. But I live up on the north side of the city. And so I know the red line and the purple line and the brown line. But the green line is like a foreign land to me. Like I don't, I don't ever ride the green line. But Google's telling me, hey, you got to take the green line. So I go find the green line station. It's a stop I'd never gotten on at before. So I go and I uh, get to the station. And uh, I get to the station. And as I get there, um, I see the train that I think I'm supposed to catch pulling into the station as I get to the station. And so I hustle up the stairs, run up there, round the corner to jump onto the train just as I hear the sound, doors closing. You know, you had that experience before? You get there right in the nick of time, only see the train about to leave. But I turn the corner and I think I'm going to make it. And then I realize that I'm on the wrong platform. The train is over there and I'm over here. And uh, I'm just not going to catch it. And I'm separated by the tracks from the place where I really need to be. And the train that I need to catch is taken off without me. Maybe you've been there before. Maybe you've had that experience. Well, in many ways, that's what our text this morning is all about. We have been working through the book of Romans. And today we come to Romans chapter 3. And what the Apostle Paul has been doing in the first two chapters of Romans is that he's been making the case that all people, religious Jews and irreligious Gentiles, all people, all of us, we've rebelled against God and we rightly deserve his just judgment. As Pastor Jason put it last week, no matter how religious or irreligious you are, there is nowhere to hide. We are all guilty before God and we're all deserving of his judgment. And for that reason, we've subtitled this section of our study in Romans, The Vast Separation. Because the reality is that no matter how close to God you think you might be, or how far from God you might think you are, no matter what, all of us, we find ourselves on the wrong train platform, separated from God in the place that we really need to be. Now as we come to our text in chapter 3 this morning, we really come to what is a parenthetical aside in Paul's argument. He resumes the main line of the argument in verse 9. But verses 1 through 8 are like this parenthetical aside. And uh, what he's doing is Paul is writing to this audience. It's made up both of religious Jews and of irreligious pagan Gentiles. And he knows that as he levels this charge that they're both equally guilty before God. That they're all on level ground before God. He knows that especially many of his deeply religious Jewish readers are going to object to that argument. And he he knows they're going to object because before he became a follower of Jesus, Paul was one of those deeply religious Jews. At the time, Paul uh, Paul went by the name of Saul. 
And Saul was a member of the religious party known as the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were famous for looking down at the Gentiles and priding themselves on being better than the Gentiles. So Paul knows the position of his Jewish readers really, really well. He knows where they're coming from because he used to beat them. And what he does here is he puts on his Saul the Pharisee hat in order to raise the objections that he knows his Jewish readers are going to be raising at this point in the argument. As a good defender of the faith, Paul does what any of us should do when we're making a case. He anticipates his audience's objections and he takes time to respond to them. It's a great practice as you're engaging in spiritual conversations. So you can think about these verses today as a dialogue between Saul the Pharisee and Paul the Christian, where Paul the Christian responds to the Jewish objections to this whole idea of the vast separation. That's what's going on here, okay? So with that in mind, would you stand with me? Would you read Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8? Romans 3, 1 through 8. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath upon us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Father, we read these words this morning. And this is a challenging text of scripture. It's hard to understand in many ways. And uh, it's hard to apply in our hearts. But I pray, God, as we open it, as we talk about it this morning, that you would bring us understanding. Would you open the eyes of our hearts to see and understand the beauty and the glory of what you're saying today. I pray, God, that you would give us soft hearts to receive it. And God, with the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, as I preach it, be pleasing in your sight. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. So there are three objections that Saul the Pharisee brings up here in this text. And though uh, all three of these objections arise from a particularly Jewish context, all three of them are really common objections in our day as well. We see the first objection in verse 1. If everything you're saying is true, Paul, then what advantage has the Jew? Or, Or what is the value of circumcision? This is what I'm going to call the I don't like it objection. The I don't like it objection. See, the Jews were God's chosen people. Of all the people groups in the world, God had chosen them to belong to him. He had rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He had given them his law. He would brought them to the promised land. And he dwelt among them as their God. So the Jews viewed themselves as being extra special in God's eyes. 
They saw themselves as privileged and they took great pride in that privilege. And it sure seems like with the argument that Paul is making that Paul is messing with that privilege. Like Paul's saying that being a Jew makes no essential difference on the day of judgment. And so Saul the Pharisee on behalf of the Jews basically says here, I don't like it. I like my privileged status with God and I don't like the implications of what you're saying here, Paul. Now most of us here today, we are not ethnically Jewish. Some of us are, but most of us are not. And most of us are not overly concerned, regardless of what religious background you have, most of us are not overly concerned with the religious value of circumcision. But we nonetheless often object to God's judgment on the very same grounds that Paul that Saul the Pharisee is objecting to here. Whether we'd ever say it out loud or not, we often think at a heart level that because we are better than others in some area of our lives, that we therefore stand on higher, safer ground when it comes to facing God's judgment. So for those of us who grew up in the church, we hear Paul's argument that your religious pedigree doesn't matter, and we protest, we protest well, well, what about all the Bible verses I have memorized? Or, or, or what about my church attendance? I got, I have, I've had perfect attendance at church. I'm always there. Or, or what about my daily devotions? I never miss every morning. I'm always up. Or, or what, about, what about my abstinence from sex? God, I have been pure. I've never done there. I've never done that. Or, or what, about, what about my not drinking too much? God, I've never been drunk. I've never had that experience. Or or what about my tithing? God, God, do you know how much money I have given to the church? God, what about how good I've been? And even even for those of us who who are not particularly religious, we still protest God's judgment based on some other aspect of our personal pedigree that makes us think we're better than others. We say, along with Paul, "Then, then what advantage has the rich person? Or what advantage has the educated person? or the male, or the female, or the urbanite, because I live in the city, or the majority culture, or the minority culture, or the woke, or the westerner, or the powerful, or the whatever, fill in the blank. At the end of the day, we object to the egalitarian nature of God's judgment on the grounds that we think we are better than others based on some aspect of our status, or our upbringing, or our performance in life. And this is the I don't like it objection based on privilege. We want to be special because of something about us. Now look at how Paul the Christian responds to this objection in verse 2. Because it is fascinating what he does here. In light of the whole argument so far in Romans, you would expect him to answer the question, what advantage has the Jew? With the answer, none at all. But that is not what he says. Look at verse 2. What advantage has the Jew? What privilege has the Jew? Much in every way. Much in every way. The Jew has lots of advantage and privilege. He goes on, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. This is a massive statement. This is the only time Paul uses this phrase, the oracles of God, in all of his writings. The word oracles refers to divine sayings. And it's a, it's a nuanced term that refers generally to the word of God, but specifically to the revelation of God himself and the promises that God has made to his chosen people. 
And Paul says here that the Jews, amen. Paul says here that the Jews have been entrusted with that revelation and with those promises. So while being ethnically Jewish makes no difference on the day of judgment, it does make a massive difference right now. The Jews had been entrusted with God's revelation and with God's promises. They had special access to God's truth. And that fact, Paul says, it does privilege them. So Paul does not say, you're not privileged. Instead, he ups the ante and he says, you're actually far more privileged than you even know. But he also, at the same time, he reframes the whole idea of privilege. Because the privilege he's talking about is not the privilege of comfort and security. It's the privilege of responsibility. Your privilege, it can't save you, but it does send you out on a mission. Paul says the Jews have been entrusted with the oracles of God. That means that God trusted them with his revelation of himself. And here's the thing about being entrusted with something. When you entrust, when someone entrusts something to you, it doesn't really belong to you. It's put in your care, and you are given a responsibility to handle it according to the giver's instructions. So it's like when you send something with FedEx, right? When you send a package with FedEx, you entrust your package to FedEx so that FedEx can deliver it to the intended recipient. So FedEx, when they get your package, they can't just take it and do with it whatever they want. Right? Like they can't, they can't take your package and go be like the Bears offense and just punt it, right? They can't just go kicking it around. And they can't, they can't be like you on a fall evening and take it and use it as kindling for a bonfire, right? Like they, don't, they can't do that with your package. You're entrusting it to their care. And FedEx has a responsibility to follow through on your trust, to follow your instructions, to protect your package, and deliver it on time to the right address. And what Paul is saying here is that Israel was like FedEx. They were privileged to have been entrusted with the oracles of God. But those oracles had an address on them. They were addressed to the whole world. So they were, that included Israel, but it also included everybody else. And the Jews had a responsibility to receive those oracles themselves and to protect them and then deliver them to the rest of the world. So here's the point of all this. Paul is Uncle Ben, and Israel is Peter Parker. And he's saying, you do have great privilege. But with great privilege comes great responsibility. With great privilege comes great responsibility. And that was true for first century Jews, and that's equally true for 21st century Gentiles like you and me. If you're in this room today, you are enormously privileged. You are enormously privileged. Regardless of your social or economic status or your, your status in society around you, regardless of that, you are privileged to be in a place where you can hear the oracles of God taught from week to week. You may or may not be rich or powerful in the world, but you have access to God and to his word. And that is a tremendous privilege. And what Paul says to all of us privileged people here today is that with great privilege comes great responsibility. With great privilege comes great responsibility. You are to be like FedEx, stewarding what God has entrusted to you faithfully and delivering his message to a world that needs to hear it. So that's the first objection. 
We see the second objection in verse 3. And this is the objection that Paul's argument makes God look bad. It makes God look bad. So all the Pharisee says, okay, Paul, okay, I see what you're saying about privilege. I get it. But what if some were unfaithful? What if, what if some were unfaithful? What if some did just go and punt the package around? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Like if God gave his trust to untrustworthy people, what does that say about God? So Paul, your argument, doesn't that mean that, that God himself can't be trusted? If he trusts untrustworthy people, he doesn't seem very trustworthy. So Paul, your argument, it makes God look bad. To say, to say it the way that all the kids are saying it these days, Paul, your argument, it throws shade at God. Paul, you're throwing shade at God. That's what you're doing. And this is really a version of a very common objection that gets raised today. For many people in our culture, one of the major reasons why they have trouble believing in God is because they look at God's people and they see them doing things that everybody else is doing. They look no different from the world around them. They see Christians who claim to represent God, who've been entrusted by God with his message, but who look no different than everybody else. Or in many cases, look worse than everybody else. A great example of, uh, of this objection comes from my plumber, Tom. Um, I love my plumber, Tom. Uh, he's a great plumber. He will be late, so he will not be on time, but he will give you a great price, and he will do great work for you. So I love my plumber, Tom, and he's done a lot of work for us over the last several years. And along the way, Paul, Tom and I have had several really good conversations, including several really good spiritual conversations. And for Tom, one of the major reasons that he objects to Christianity is because of the hypocrisy of certain Christians that he's been around. See, before Tom became a plumber, he was a funeral director. And in his work as a funeral director, he often, um, he was really turned off to Christianity by the pastors who officiated some of the funerals. A lot of times these, uh, these pastors, he said, they were, they were so much more concerned about getting paid than they were about caring for the grieving people entrusted to their care. He looked at these pastors and they were just money hungry. Just want to get money out of people. And Tom looks at that as the funeral director and he's like, these are supposed to be God's representatives. But in real life, they just look like everybody else. There's nothing here. And so Tom has just rejected Christianity because of what he's seen from Christians. They turned him off to God. And y'all, there are all kinds of folks around us for whom that's their story. They've had that experience. They, God's people made God look bad, so they reject God. And so this is the it makes God look bad objection to Paul's argument. But look at how Paul responds to this one. He concedes nothing on this point. Verse 4. By no means. By no means. In the Greek text, this is the most emphatic possible rejection. It gets translated variously as God forbid. May it never be. Not on your life. So Paul comes down swiftly and clearly. He says, no. The untrustworthiness of people does not negate the trustworthiness of God. He goes on. Let God be true though everyone were a liar. So even if every person on earth were unfaithful, God would remain faithful. If every person on earth were false, God would still be true. Man's failures never negate God's character. 
No matter how dark the night of our failures may be, God's character shines like the midday summer sun. He is true. He is trustworthy. He is faithful. Always. That's what Paul says. And to support his position here, Paul cites a verse from Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a famous psalm where King David, right after raping this woman named Bathsheba and then murdering her husband Uriah to try to cover it up, right after all that, King David confesses his sin and his failure to God. And in the midst of David's plea for mercy in Psalm 51 verses 3 and 4, he confesses, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before you. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And Paul quotes this text to make the point that sin is always against God and is never God's fault. He is not culpable for our sin. We are. And God's role is to be the judge who rightly judges those who sin, both religious Jews and irreligious Gentiles alike. And so our failures, Paul says, do not nullify God's trustworthiness. On the contrary, they actually serve to show just how trustworthy God really is. God is so trustworthy that he keeps all of his word. And that includes the parts that talk about blessing for obedience, but also the parts that talk about consequences for disobedience. And Israel, just like everybody else, had disobeyed God. They had punted the package. And so they, just like everybody else, stand in the same position, deserving the consequences of God's just judgment. All of us do. And so do we today. Apart from Christ, when any of us stands trial before God, we stand before a righteous judge who will judge rightly based on his righteous character. And when he renders a guilty verdict, he will be proven right. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. And so what this means is that we must all remember that judgment is coming for anyone who makes God look bad. And when it does, God will look good because he will judge rightly. So if you're here today, and you like my plumber Tom, you have a hard time believing in Christianity because of what you've seen from Christians. Let me just say that the problem you're seeing is not actually a problem with God at all. It's a problem with us. And the Bible is really honest about that reality, and so are the best Christians. They're honest about that fact. You see, when Martin Luther King Jr., when he found himself getting fed up with the sinful hypocrisy and the racism that he saw in many white Christians during the civil rights movement, he didn't respond to that by saying, get rid of God. He didn't urge them to get rid of God because he knew the problem wasn't with God. And he knew that when Christians weren't acting very Christian, the problem wasn't with Christianity. The problem was with people. And so he didn't urge them to get rid of God or get rid of Christianity. On the contrary, what he said is put it on more fully. Put on your Christianity more fully. He urged Christians to actually live consistently with what they said they believed. And so if you're someone here today who says you're a believer in Christ, live like it. Live like it. God has entrusted you with himself and with his message. And you have a responsibility to steward that message faithfully, to steward his trust faithfully. Put on your Christianity more fully both for the sake of those who are watching you 
and for your own sake. Because this text tells us that the just judge is coming for you too. And Paul says that even if you've made him look bad right now, he will look good when he prevails in judgment in the end. And if you're not a believer in Christ here today, please don't write off God because of his people. Look past his people and give this God of faithfulness and truth and justice a fair chance. Look to the source. So that's the second objection. Here's the third one. And it's what I'm going to call the it's not fair objection. The it's not fair objection. Look at verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? This objection, it builds on the conclusion that Paul has just drawn. So it goes like this. If, as you say, Paul, God looks good when he judges me, it seems then that God is kind of double dipping. Like, he gets glory if I do good, and he gets glory if I do bad. And it seems like I'm just kind of a pawn in his game. And that just doesn't seem fair. That just doesn't seem fair. Verse 7 reiterates the same objection in slightly different terms. It says, but, but if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, so if through my bad, God looks good, then why am I still being condemned as a sinner? So all of this is kind of a roundabout way to voice one of the most common objections we hear even in our own day. Basically, the objection here is that it's just not fair for God to judge me. Who does God think he is? Where does he get off putting me on trial and rendering a verdict on my life? It's just not fair. Now here in Romans... This objection gets raised from the perspective of Jews who thought they were God's chosen people and therefore by their special status would never have to face the judgment of God. So Paul responds directly to them and not necessarily to modern secular people in what he says. But the key point that Paul has been seeking to make in these early chapters of Romans is that God is a just judge who will render a verdict on every life. Jew, Gentile, ancient, modern, Christian, secular, everyone. Some will be saved and some will be condemned. Some will spend eternity in heaven, and some will spend eternity in hell. And in our modern Western society, lots of people raise some form of the same objection that Saul the Pharisee raises here. It's just not fair. It's just not right that God would judge like that. Now look at how Paul responds to this objection. With a flurry of activity, he makes it abundantly clear that this objection is totally bogus. So in verse 5, right after the question, he adds this parenthetical remark. He says, I speak in a human way. He's saying that this objection is purely human. It is not of God at all. Then he uses the same emphatic rejection as he did back in verse 4. By no means. Then he says... If God can't judge when it makes him look good, then how could God judge the world at all? In other words, how could there ever be any judgment for any wrongdoing if that were the case? Then, after he reiterates the question in verse 8, he gets real snarky. In ver- after he reiterates, reiterates the question in verse 7, he gets real snarky in verse 8. And he says, well, well, then why not do evil so that more good may come? Like, why not just while out and do a whole lot of bad stuff so that, so that God can look real good when he judges us for it? And then Paul calls that whole idea slander. 
And then in the final sentence of the paragraph, he says, their condemnation is just. Translation, if you condemn the God of judgment, you will find yourself condemned by the God of judgment. So bottom line, Paul basically dismisses this entire objection about the fairness of God's judgment as being utterly nonsensical. He says it is ridiculous to object to God judging you on the grounds that it's not fair. Now I know that for some of us, that does not feel like a deeply satisfying answer to the question of the fairness of God's judgment. But if you pause to think about it, I think you'll realize that Paul is spot on here. The key is verse 6. Then how could God judge the world? I find it very peculiar that in our world today, it is often the people who most loudly object to the judgment of God who also most loudly cry out for justice in society. We love justice, but we do not want judgment. So we want social justice and criminal justice and economic justice and gender justice and political justice and climate justice and education justice and all sorts of other justice. We rant on social media and we march in rallies crying out for justice. But at the very same time, we don't want anyone to judge us. So we may embrace a God of love but we certainly reject a God who judges in any way. But here's the problem with that tactic. If you really want justice in the world, then you need a God who judges justly. If you really want justice in the world, then you need a God who judges justly. What I mean by that is that without God, you have no ultimate standard of justice. Now, this is not to say that without God, you can't live a just life. You can, and many certainly do, sometimes far better than people who do believe in a God of justice. But it is to say that without God, you don't have any legitimate grounds on which to base the entire project of justice in the first place. See, without God, what you have is feeling and philosophy and conjecture and opinion You have yourself and you can say what you prefer and what you feel deeply about and what you're passionate about. But you don't have any higher ultimate standard by which to say that anything is objectively right or wrong. So for example, you may feel passionately that something like sexism or racism or economic disparity or immigration restrictions, that that those things are wrong and that all people should have equal rights. You may feel deeply and passionately about that stuff. And you might be right that those things should happen. But on what basis can you go and tell someone in another part of the world? Or on what basis can you go and tell your neighbor or someone who lives down the street from you who sincerely disagrees with you and feels equally passionate about a different position? On what basis can you go and tell that person that they're wrong and that you're right? If their moral intuitions differ from yours, on what basis can you say that your intuitions are superior to theirs? See, if there is no God, and if this world is all there is, then there is nothing above in life. There's nothing above this life. 
There is no objective standard by which to say that sexism or racism or nationalism or any other ism is wrong. There's nothing, about, there's nothing above any of us to ultimately enforce any position. So you can protest all day long based on your feelings, but you don't have any real foundation outside of yourself on which to stand in order to do so. And on top of that, anyone who has experienced injustice in this life or who's tried to fight for justice in the world, you know just how hard it is to bring that justice about. Like, it's complicated, right? There's a whole lot of evil and injustice in our world. And despite all kinds of efforts to try to fix it, injustice remains like a permanent stain. It never comes out. And even beyond that, in a super complex society, sometimes it's really hard to even figure out what justice is. Sometimes situations are so messy and complicated that it's impossible to even figure out what it would mean to do justice in that situation. And so not only do you need God as a foundation from which to seek justice, but you also need God as a perfect and righteous judge who will finally bring about justice in the end. We need the God who will ultimately deal with evil and who will set all things right and who, in the words of Lord of the Rings, of J.R.R. Tolkien, will make all, everything sad come untrue. We need that kind of God. And so if you want justice in the world, you need the God of justice who judges the world and who judges us. You need it. So that's the third objection. And to it, Paul basically says, stop putting God on trial. He is the judge, and you need the judge. Stop trying to put him on trial. So as we've walked through these verses, we've seen that all three of these objections ultimately fail. And in the end, that's what happens with every objection. Now, I'm not saying that to be dismissive this morning. Like, Paul pulls over here to ad address the objections raised in his context, and we need to address sincere objections raised in our context, too. But in the end, when all is said and done, we, with everyone else, we will finally say what Paul says right in the middle of this passage. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. God is true, trustworthy, faithful. That's what we'll say in the end. Because here's the truth about these objections in this text and about objections in general. The reason that they're really being raised has far less to do with the mind and the intellect than it does with the will and the heart. Yes, people have sincere intellectual questions and doubts. I've wrestled deeply with some of those over the years myself. But so often, the real reason that we object to God, the reason behind the reason, the thing that's going on behind the scenes, that's underneath our objections. So often, the real thing is, what the, is because of what the existence of God would mean for our lives. See, if God is the judge before whom we will all stand, then he has claims on all of us. If he sits on the throne of the universe as king over all, or, or if, as Kanye West put it out in an album this week, if Jesus is Lord, then we must all bow our knees to him. He's the one who calls the shots, not us. And at a heart level, so many of us just don't like that. We want to be the boss. We want to run the show. We want to be our own gods and make our own calls. So we object God away so that we can be in charge. Jonathan Rosenblum is a Jewish journalist and author. 
He's not a Christian. But several years ago, he wrote an article in the Jerusalem Post with the title, The Will to Disbelieve. And in it, he wrote this. You should be able to see it behind me. He wrote, It is not difficult to locate modern man's resistance to God. As Dostoevsky's Ivan lamented, if God does not exist, everything is permitted. For the modern temperament, the freedom from restraint is positive, not a cause for lament. So we like freedom from restraint. We want everything to be permitted. So we don't want to be restrained by God. He goes on. Many who are content to while away their time watching Baywatch, so he's dating himself a little bit here. Um, But many who are content to while away their time watching Baywatch and the like would be distinctly uncomfortable with the thought that God is in the room watching over their shoulder. And quick to concede that if God created man, he probably had other pursuits in mind for him. Solution? Deny God. When my younger brother was a freshman at Yale, he took a special seminar in the classics of Western literature. Virtually the entire section on the Bible focused on theories of multiple authorship. So these are uh, theories that seek to undermine the credibility and reliability of the Bible. They try to object away the Bible. My brother challenged the professor to explain why he had not dwelt in a similar fashion on theories of multiple homers when reading the Iliad. The answer was simple. Homer is not prescriptive. He makes no concrete demands on the modern reader. The Bible, by contrast, insists that there is a divine standard by which we will all be judged. That was an idea too dangerous for Yale. And that idea is too dangerous for lots of folks around us too. At a heart level, that's really why we so often object to God. But Paul's point in this text is that in the end, every one of those objections fails. And God remains true and faithful and just. His character shines brighter in comparison with ours. And we are all culpable before him. All of us. Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, strong, weak, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, female, male, old, young. All of us stand before God on level ground deserving his just judgment for our sin. And there is still nowhere to hide. No amount of privilege, no amount of money, no amount of religion, no amount of Bible knowledge, no amount of church attendance, and no amount of objection can or will ever save you. I began this morning talking about racing up the train platform only to find myself on the wrong side of a vast separation. And Paul's point in this text is that that's where all of us find ourselves. Only it's not a separation between us and a CTA train. It's a separation between us and God. And the separation is not the distance from one side of a platform to the other. It's it's the distance between uh, the two sides of the Grand Canyon. It's the distance between America and Europe with a vast ocean between us. It's the distance between here and the moon with all of space in between us. It's a distance so great, a separation so vast, that no amount, no amount of effort or objection could ever save us or propel us across it. And with a separation so vast, the only salvation available to any of us is the one offered to us by the judge himself. Your objections cannot save you. Only Jesus can. 
And that's the bigger point toward which Paul is working in this whole letter. The whole reason that Paul drives home the magnitude of our vast separation is because he ultimately wants to drive us toward the great salvation offered to us in Christ. You see, Jesus Christ came into this world and he lived the most faithful life of any person who has ever lived. He carried the message, he carried, he carried the, the message of God faithfully in both his life and his words, and he delivered that message faithfully to the whole world. His was a life of faithfulness, truth, righteousness, justice, and glory. Of all the people who have ever lived, he's the only one who showed up on the right side of the platform. He's the only one who deserved a ride on God's train. And yet he saw us on the other side of the vast separation, and he came for us. He came and he suffered the injustices of betrayal and rejection and slander and imprisonment and ultimately execution. Though he was without sin, he was condemned as a sinner. He did good, but evil came for him. And he died on the cross where God the Father inflicted all of his wrath against sin upon his perfect, sinless son. And the reason he did it was to lay down his life as a bridge across the vast separation so that people like you and me who deserve God's wrath can instead take a ride on God's train forever. Y'all, the separation is great. But the salvation that God offers through Christ is greater still. God, in his oracles of old, had promised that one day he would come and he would rescue his people. In Jesus Christ, he kept his word like he always does. And he delivered on his promise. And what that means for all of us here today is that if you want to be on God's side of the platform, you need Jesus. If you want to be on God's side of the platform, you need Jesus. So put down your objections and put your faith in Jesus Christ. You need him. And if you are here today and you call yourself a Christian, remember today that it is not your religious pedigree that saves you. Only Jesus can do that. And if you are trusting in Jesus, then you've got a free ride on God's train forever. But with that free ride comes great responsibility. You've been entrusted with God's package and you have a responsibility to deliver it to the world around you. So steward that trust faithfully. Put your Christianity on fully and represent God well with your words and your deeds, not to earn your way onto the train, but because you're already there and so that you can invite others to join you on the way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that you are true even when we are false. We thank you that you are faithful even when we are unfaithful. God, we praise you for your great faithfulness to us. You're so faithful that you kept your promises even to sinful people to make a way for us to be made right with you. I pray today, God, for those who are here who, uh, who don't, don't yet know you. Um, people who have lots of objections, who have lots of questions. God, would you provide answers to what they need? Would you draw near to them and help them, God? Help them to, to hear your voice, to know that you're there, that you're real, that you're true, that you're trustworthy. Pray, Father, that um, for those of us who, who are your people, who do know you, God, that you would remind us of the magnitude of the great salvation you've worked for us in Christ. Would we uh, put on the salvation that we have 
in every way. And we live faithfully as your uh, representatives in the world. We thank you that you've entrusted us with the gospel and with your, uh, with, with your character, with your life, that we can be your people and represent you in the world. And God, I pray that we would do that well here in Rogers Park and all across the city and all over the world. And that you'd use us to bring many people across the great, the vast separation so they would know the great God of truth and faithfulness and trustworthiness. We pray that in Jesus' name.